It is with excitement that I get to share with you that the Leukaemia Foundation has developed a new resource. This resource is called the Online Support Service, where it provides a wealth of services to assist a person living with blood cancer throughout their patient journey. So whether you're a patient who has just been diagnosed, in treatment or in survivorship, this service provides access to targeted learning modules, a suite of amazing services and online programs. And you also have the ability to chat with an experienced blood cancer support coordinator at just one click. It gives people a personalised and intuitive way to learn about important topics, including what to expect beyond treatment. This service is simple to use and is filled with content curated by the Leukaemia Foundation for people with any type of blood cancer. It notably features a digital energy coach to help patients manage fatigue. So jump onto our website and look up our new and exciting product called the Online Blood Cancer Support Service. You get to a point in life where you think you're in control of everything and uh, mm-hmm. all of a sudden it gets taken out from underneath you. I guess I kind of felt ripped off. It's just living in the moment and just being adaptable to situations. Give people voices to talk about, Do you know what, that phase is often the hardest and be prepared for it because it's not what you think it will be. Talking Blood Cancer, a podcast for those facing blood cancer by the Leukaemia Foundation find the best way forward using their own purpose that they have in their life and using their passions. I've lost fear and doubt. Like I no longer doubt myself in situations and nothing scares me. That gives you another goal to work towards and and a reason to live. I'm Kate Arkadip, and I am the host of Talking Blood Cancer. This podcast shares the stories of the people we have connected with who have faced a blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. Before we get into today's episode, the Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the land on which we share these stories. We recognise their continuing connection to land, sea and community as the first storytellers of this country. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone, or even if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to contact one 800 620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. Natalie Cook, the OAM, is an accredited practicing dietitian, an accredited nutritionalist, a qualified registered dietitian, 
and she was awarded the Medal of Order of Australia on the 26th of January 2022 for her services to dietetics. Natalie was diagnosed with NPN in 2008. She tells the story today of the delay in her diagnosis and how, after attending a conference in the USA, on the flight home, she made the decision to try and get Pegasus on the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme for people with NPN in Australia. It took six years to achieve this dream, and hearing her share the story of how she made it happen is truly astounding. Not only has Natalie so graciously shared her story with us here on the podcast, she has also helped review our booklet for nutrition and for that we thank her for her contribution to the Leukemia Foundation. I would also like to apologise for the audio on this episode. Please bear with it and keep listening as Natalie's story is definitely one to hear. Hi there and welcome to Talking Blood Cancer. Today's guest is Natalie Cook, so I might have her introduce herself as to what is her name, where is she living in Australia, who is in her family and what and when she was diagnosed. So hi, welcome. Thank you, Kate. It's a pleasure to be here. My name's Natalie Cook. I um, live in Melbourne, Melbourne and I'm married with two adult children who are 24 and 21. Yes. And they've just left home in the last year, so that's a big change. Yeah. Um, And I was diagnosed with MPN in 2007. Yeah. And what was happening during that time? Were you you working? Were you, um, yeah, obviously raising children? (laughs) Yes, I was working. So I'm a dietitian and I work in community health. Annual Community Health and also Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. So I work full time between those two places. And I was working at the time, my children were little. So my daughter was only about six and my son was 10 when I was diagnosed. Wow. Yeah. And, and so life was busy. Life was, yes. I envision at, at that stage with children that age, it was, it was very busy. And um, sometimes health is put on the back burner for mothers and, and family and parents, I should say more so as well. Absolutely, Kate. And I actually had a lot of seemingly unrelated symptoms for many years that didn't seem to be quite bad enough to go to the doctor. They were more annoying things. So I used to get a lot of headaches and I thought that they were migraines. I used to get very sore hands and my hands would sort of peel and crack and then bleed. And that was really annoying because, you know, even things like folding washing and things used to be Mm. quite painful at times. And then it would sort of spontaneously heal and it'd be okay and I'd forget about it. Um, And... I also would get abdominal pain and sort of irritable bowel sort of symptoms and I went to my GP about that and I asked to be checked for celiac disease and had had various investigations and nothing really came up and that would come and go too. Mm. Um, and it was only really when the first indication that was something wrong with my blood was when I was pregnant with my daughter And I remember the obstetrician commenting that my platelets were a bit high. And he said to me, you may need to get that checked at some point. And I remember looking at him and thinking, he doesn't seem too concerned about it. So I just didn't worry about it. And 
So life went on, my daughter was born, and then over those years I continued to get those those headaches which I thought were migraines, and I used to also get like a visual sort of thing with the headache where it was like um, little lights in my peripheral vision. Right, right. And then um, that continued, and I remember one day I was actually at work writing in a patient's file, and this visual sort of thing became a lot worse and it was almost like I was looking through water as I looked at the page and I really got scared and thought wow am I having a stroke or what's happening here wow so I called my GP and I I told him what was happening and he sent me off for some tests so he sent me to an optometrist to have my eyes checked he sent me for a brain scan and also for a blood test Wow. And then he called me after that and said, look, everything looks fine except your platelets are a bit high and I want that repeated in in a, a couple of months. And we were about to go on a big family holiday that had been much anticipated. And he said, look, don't worry about it. Enjoy your holiday and do the blood test on your return. So off we went and I sort of put it out of my mind. And when I eventually got around to having that blood test and going back to see him a few months later, he said that the platelets were higher than they had been previously and he referred me to a haematologist to investigate the possibility of having essential thrombocythemia. And I realised, because of my years in healthcare, so I'm a dietitian now and previously I trained first as a nurse Okay. And then I went back and did a science degree and a master's in nutrition and dietetics along the way. And I've worked as a dietitian since. So I've always worked in healthcare and I had never heard of essential thrombocythemia. Mm. So I knew going to a haematologist sounded serious because I know you don't go to haematologists unless you really need to. Absolutely. So I got home and of course I did what we all do and I jumped on the internet and Googled and read everything I could get my hands on. And of course I saw the worst case scenarios and, and, and I worked out that it was um, a chronic blood cancer and that there was chance of progression. And some people end up with myelofibrosis and they may need stem cell transplant and all of those things totally scared me so when my husband came home I was pretty upset about all of that I can imagine and and you're right like you as you say you have that knowledge of that medical brain going on and you could just yeah you couldn't you can fall down a rabbit hole and I think so many people have of Dr Google in awesome and almost a way of self-preparation before you get to the doctor to prepare yourself for some news exactly Kate and I think part of that is suddenly you feel like things are out of control and you're wanting to regain some control so that thirst for knowledge is a way of trying to reassure yourself but in in doing that you find information that scares you more absolutely absolutely and you and they're not facts no, at that point they're absolutely. just assumptions. they're just exactly assumption. yeah. exactly exactly so anyway i had to wait to see this hematologist for it was actually two months that which was an awful wait oh, because he was very busy and 
When I finally got in there, I knew that he was going to send me off for a bone marrow biopsy, which he did. Mm-hmm. And that was very scary because I was at a private hospital and I was sent onto this ward where there were where there were people having chemotherapy and people with all their IVs and everything. And I was like, what am I doing here? I'm not meant to be here in this yeah. world. So that was quite confronting. Absolutely. So anyway, when the result came back, it was, it was quite... Um, well, it was sort of uncertain as to whether I actually had essential thrombocythemia or early myelofibrosis. Oh, and man. it basically said it could be this or it might be that and we can't tell at the moment. So it was really um, not very helpful. Oh, so it God. left me with that nagging doubt that it might have been early myelofibrosis. Yeah. And why was it that they couldn't decipher what it was? Because there was some fibrosis in my bone marrow and that was how whoever the pathologist was who examined it, that was how he described it. Right, so there wasn't enough to classify it as a full-blown myelofibrosis, but then... Yes. It said early myelofibrosis, it appeared to be um, essential thrombocythemia, but early myelofibrosis could not be excluded. Okay, right. That's yeah. what it said. Oh. So it was sort of could be this and it could be this. And so oh. I'm thinking, well, what is it that I've got? Oh, no. Yeah. So anyway, I just went on aspirin and, of course, every blood test, I was worried. Had it progressed yet? And then about a, month, a year down the track, I remember asking when I should have another bone marrow biopsy. And this oh, so you never had one. You never yes, had... I did. I, yeah. I had a first one, but I wanted to know when I should have a second one. To oh, check yes, that's what I meant. Yeah, so yes. they didn't. They didn't um, do one at say six months or no. three months. No, oh, no. Ah. So I was left wondering what was happening. Yes. And then I remember this hematologist saying to me, "Oh, yes, you can have one if you like." And he started writing it out, and I'm like, "No. When do you think I should have one?" I wasn't just saying give me one I was saying when do you think I should have one you know and he said um I said you know do you think I could be progressing what do you think the chance could be and I remember him saying to me look we probably won't know for a year or so so enjoy your life sort of thing so I remember leaving thinking my kids were little my daughter was about seven by then my son's about 11 and And how old were you I was about, what, how old was I then? I was in my early 40s. Okay, yeah. So I remember thinking, I might only have a year to live. And I remember coming out thinking, I won't go shopping and buy clothes because I might not need them. That's how I felt. Oh, God. And, and then I remember thinking, look, he didn't seem certain I need this bone marrow biopsy. And in the first one, you know, it was a bit painful, especially afterwards. So I ended up deciding I'm not having that. I want a second opinion. So I went and found another haematologist. And how was that? Like, I talk to a lot of people and they talk about how, yeah, they're not quite comfortable with the first opinion or they don't feel like they're gelling. But I think to make that decision, and I think people need to be aware that they absolutely have the right to go seek a second opinion. But how did you get to that point to almost get the confidence to go, no, I'm going to do that I'm, I'm going to seek that and not worry about the hematologist that I'm currently seeing's feelings or mm-hmm. yeah I guess being a health professional I know that we all have patients who you know will change 
health professionals or they will decide to see someone else other than us at different points and that's all okay and I always encourage my patients to do that and say you know it's about your health and we're all different personalities and there's different personality matches or different you know ways of communicating and that's fine and most health professionals I know are all happy with that too it's not a personal thing it's about you getting the care that you need from the person you work best with mm, absolutely so, yes so I guess for me it wasn't a, a difficult decision because I wanted to be certain I was getting the right information and the right that not so much the right care because I didn't need any other real treatment at that point but I was very worried about my health and I was trying to hide it from my children and hide it from my family and cope without upsetting everyone else around me. And as a mother, that's a big burden that you carry too. You try to keep everything bouncy and happy and everybody looked after. And so that was a big pressure for me. So they didn't know that you had this somewhat diagnosis or? They did. And I just said, I remember my son, who's 11, saying to me, is it going to affect your life expectancy, mum? <laughs> this 11-year-old. What, a big, what a big question. <laughs> he was always, he's always been a very articulate boy. And I said, oh, no, no, I just have to have blood tests every now and again. He's like, okay, cool, forget about yeah. that. In, in a very much a practical sort of little boy way, it's like and, questions and all, answered, all good. And almost um, for a lot of children, it's like, well, how is this going to affect me? Oh, right, yes, that's yes. just that's just mum having a blood test. That yes. does it affect me? I'm okay. Off we go. Exactly. 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 So, I so I was trying to, trying do, to that. do that, and that was and really that was hard. Really hard. I was worried about it. Especially I remember that feeling when I had you a blood had test blood coming up, I'd get really stressed about it. So anyway, I went along and I saw this um, other haematologist at another big hospital and I remember just calling up and asking if I could have an appointment with the haematologist that I wanted a second opinion and the receptionist read out the names of the doctors and I remember some of them um, were a bit hard to pronounce and I just picked the one that was easiest to pronounce. I didn't really know anything about him at all. That one will do. And it'll do. So I went along. So originally it was for um, a second opinion. And then he said to me, look, I don't think that you are progressing to myelofibrosis. It seems to me that you have MPN. And he also agreed that that initial bone marrow biopsy report was very vague and they sort of, the person who, who examined it, the pathologist sat on the fence a bit and gave a bit of a vague, not very helpful conclusion. And um, I remember saying to him, look, can I see you now as a haematologist rather than my other one? And he said, yeah, that was okay. So, um, Oh, yes, and I also sent him a whole pack of information before my first appointment. And <laughs> As I a true actually, healthcare professional would. <laughs> exactly. I got all copies of my blood results from as far back as I could. I even contacted different places that I'd lived in previously. So my husband used to be in the Air Force, so we'd lived in Adelaide and we'd lived in Canberra and we lived in Queensland and various places, and I contacted even... Sydney University where I'd done my dietetics and I'd gone to the GP for something there and I got all these reports oh my and it God, actually Emily. showed this trend of my haemoglobin and my platelets creeping up over the years. 
Wow. So I sent that pack to my haematologist together with the bone marrow biopsy report mm. so that when I first saw him, he had a chance to go through all of this. And I remember he had a, a piece of computer paper and he had written in this tiny handwriting all these notes. And I thought, oh, he's thorough. He's actually gone through this and he's written down things. So that was a good sign for me. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that was so good. That was so good. anyway, anyway um, over the next 12 months with, with having appointments with him, mm. I would always get copies of my blood results and I could see my hemoglobin and my hematocrit kept creeping up and creeping up. Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't actually have essential thrombocythemia. I think I've got polycythemia vera. Mm. And during this time, I read everything I could get my hands on. So because I've got a science background, I, I read all the, um, the medical literature that I could find. And I worked out who were the experts in the world, in the haematology world in MPN. Mm. And during that time as well, I joined the... Um, the email support group that's run by my friend and colleague with MPNAA, um, Ken Young, yeah. who's, a one, who's been a wonderful advocate for PV and MPN over the years and has had MPN for a lot longer than I have. So he runs an email support group that he's run for many years, over 20 years, and somehow I found that online. And through that, I heard about there's an American email support group as well and I got onto that one and I heard that there was going to be a conference at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona in Phoenix Arizona that's run every second year yeah yes so around the time that I worked out that I thought I had polycythemia vera rather than essential thrombocythemia um and I did decided the doctor to... agree with that did you well I actually it was funny because I remember saying to him you know and we had a good working relationship and I said to him you know when are you going to tell me I've got polycythemia and not essential thrombocythemia when are you going to tell me because look at my platelets and my hematocrit they're too high <laughs> did he and sit I, back in his chair or he did <laughs> he sort of gasped a little bit and and said um okay uh you know it's not unusual to have the other cell lines elevated and then he said okay you might have to have a venous section. So he sent me off for a venous section. I thought, well, if you're having a venous section, that's for PV. So he didn't actually say anything yet. And then I, I said, um, so if I've got polycythemia vera, that means I, we now need to talk about treatment because I'd only been on aspirin up until this time. So this is the end of 2010. So I was diagnosed 2007 so it's about three years from my ET diagnosis and can I ask I mean you said before how you you kind of threw yourself into the research and you swallowed up as much as you could how was that balancing life and you I mean as you said you had young yes. children yes you were working um, yes how did you balance that not let it all get consuming and dark yes do you know what I used to do? I used to, when the kids were in bed and my husband travelled a lot or was home late and I'd be on the internet every second I had when they weren't around and then I'd get back into family life. So I was trying to eke out any time I could outside of my work and, and my family responsibilities yes. to focus on that. So I was trying not to make it interfere with the family and everything else that I was doing. 
Yes, was so, it successful? Was it successful? <laughs> yes, yes, I think it was pretty successful. I think it was. Yeah. Um, and then when when I said to my hematologist that I thought it was polycythemia vera, and he said, you know, we'll need to talk about treatments. So I knew there was only really two treatments, and it was either hydroxyurea or hydroxycarbamide, as they call it now, which is a tablet, and it's mm-hmm. it's considered an oral chemotherapy and then the other treatment was interferon which is an injection and the old form of interferon called roferon was the only one that was available and that was pretty notorious for causing adverse side effects so it made you feel really sick and a lot of people couldn't tolerate and ended up having to stop it because it was quite tough to tolerate so basically when we get the flu our body makes interferon so when you take interferon as a treatment it induces flu-like symptoms so you get aches and pains and headaches and fatigue and you can get nausea and you can get hair loss and all sorts of things like that yeah really hard symptoms to live day to day with Exactly, exactly. And you can take Panadol to try to manage it. It can help a bit, but it doesn't help, you know, really control them. So I remember my hematologist saying to me, look, he knew that I'd been reading up on everything because I'd often bring him papers to our appointments and we'd discuss them and that type of thing. And he said to me, look, you, you go home and decide what you want and I'll prescribe it. Wow. So I went home and I drew up a table of pros and cons, I had hydroxyurea interferon and I had pros and cons of each one. And it was actually, well, one thing that that um, worried me is that there is some data, but it's controversial and they're not really sure. There's some data to suggest that hydroxyurea may not prevent progression of the disease and it, and it may be associated with increased progression but we're not really they're not really sure about that okay um and there's there's evidence that interferon may delay progression and it may improve bone marrow status however it's very difficult to tolerate so i ended up deciding my blood counts were quite high i thought look let's start with having some hydroxyurea to get the blood counts down initially but I really want to go on to interferon as a long-term treatment. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. And I had some venous section as well to speed up that process of improving the, the blood counts. And then I went over to the Mayo Clinic. Um, and at that conference, I got to speak with, with these world expert hematologists who are leaders in the field of MPN treatment. And one in particular was... Professor Richard Silver, who's retired now, and he was actually the pioneer in interferon treatment in MPN. And he was just amazing. He was like in his late 80s or something, and he was still working, and he was absolutely amazing. But the wonderful thing at this conference was that during the breaks, it was a two-day conference, you could actually go up and talk with these haematologists and ask them questions, and it was just fantastic. Like free consults. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I also spoke with one of the other world-famous uh, f- haematologists in MPN, Professor Tafiri, mm-hmm. and he um, and I asked him what he thought of, of me 
trying. I showed him my blood counts. I had a folder to check his doctors and have a little little consult on the side. And interestingly, he has been really much an advocate for um, hydroxyurea. And he said to me, give it a try. See how you go. You're young. You know, you can always stop it. Did it give you – did that conference give you hope? Like to me – what did it give you? I shouldn't put that word in your mouth. Yes, absolutely, Kate. It gave me a lot of hope. And also there was a professor there from Paris, hematologist um, from Paris, um, Jean-Jacques Calangian, and he presented data that he'd done a study of polycythemia vera patients with the newer type of type of interferon Pegasus, and showed the results of that, and showed how the side effects were much reduced. It was as effective, but easier to tolerate, so patients could continue and benefit from the treatment. Mm. And I remember getting on that plane on the way home and thinking, "Wow, I've got to do everything I can to get Pegasus." on the PBS for MPN patients because in Australia at the time it was only on the PBS for hepatitis C treatment. Wow, how interesting. And how our, as you know, how our um, PBS works, the Pharmaceutical Benefit Scheme, is that medications are listed for particular indications, so for a particular disease and it can only be prescribed for that disease. And if doctors are prescribing it for other diseases, it's called off-label treatment, and the patient has to pay the full price of whatever the drug company yes, say it is. And That's how much right. was Pegasus at that point? Well, Pegasus at that point was four or $500 a script, and it would have worked out about about $30,000 a year. And then you would have to be on that forever in a day. Is exactly. That what, oh wow! And exactly. at that point, so you look at it, you go, "I'm mid." Were you mid forties at that point? Yes, I would have been about that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. and yep. to go, okay, well, potentially another forty plus, well, forty exactly. plus years, and to times that, you wouldn't even want to times that and work out the daily, co- the monthly cost. Absolutely, absolutely. So it was totally out of the reach of me and most people. Yeah. So I started on the Rofarum. And I started and I got all the adverse side effects. So I felt sick, I felt tired, I felt nauseated, I had, oh, it was just awful. I lost a lot of hair. I and were you working? Commenting. I was working. I kept working because, and I wanted to keep working because it was almost like I didn't want to stop because if I stop, I might not get back into everything else. I just wanted to keep the machine going, the family machine. Absolutely. You know, yes. So, and I'm a pretty energetic person anyway, so I don't like sitting still for too long. <laughs> so anyway, it was really tough. Um, soon after I started, I started contacting Roche, the drug company that make Rofiron and Pegasus. And I talked with them and said, have you considered applying for PBS listing for MPN? And they hadn't. And they said, oh, you know, it's an old drug and... You know, there was really no interest there. And um, so I just kept calling them and asking and I contacted um, my local uh, parliamentarians who happens to be Josh Frydenberg. I went up to Canberra and met with him um, wow. and then asked him. So we actually got to go up to Canberra for something else 
and we'd won this um, tour of Parliament House. It was at an auction, a school dinner, oh, fundraising, fundraising auction, auction thing. thing. And um, we'd won this lunch with Josh Frydenberg. So I thought, I'm going to use this. Did you, turn, with him. Did you turn to your husband when you were at the school auction and going, we're going to win that. I don't care how much it costs. We're going to do it. Well, <laughs> do you know what? He actually thought of it before I did. Oh, really? Because I thought, what's he bidding for this for? <laughs> Why do and we want to go there? Exactly. What do we want to have lunch with, you know, Josh Frydenberg for? Anyway, he was very nice to us and he said to me, well, I actually said to him, I told him the story and said, can I write to you and can you give a letter to the health minister on my behalf? Because he was my federal member. And he said he would. So I wrote him a letter for the health minister which I sent to him and then she wrote back to me so it was Susan Lee at the time and wrote back to me and said look thank you for your interest but sorry it's not possible nothing can happen etc etc so I continued on and I continued going um, with Roche and then Roche along the way offered me compassionate access to Pegasus for myself and at first I didn't really, interestingly, I didn't really take them up on it because I was asking them to get it on the PBS for everybody. I wasn't just saying I want some. And then, so I didn't sort of take them up on that. And then another call down the track six months or so later, they said to me, you know, we have offered this to you. If you'd like it, all you need to do is ask your haematologist to contact us and prescribe it and we'll we'll send it down to the hospital. That was St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne and, and you can get it that way. So I, I arranged for that and I thanked them and and after that I sent them for, And at that sorry, were you on treatment yes. were you on treatment that whole time? I was on oh, Roferon up until then, yeah. yes. Okay, yes, yeah. yeah. And I'd and come off the hydroxyurea. Because I was on the hydroxyurea for about 18 months and then I ended up getting mouth ulcers and Mm. I stopped it. And a lot of people find they have that sort of, those sort of problems with it over time. But I was still on the Roferon and I was trying to take a low dose and trying to juggle it and it was really tough. So anyway, when I switched to the Pegasus, it was so much better. And the side effects were minimal and my blood counts continued to improve. So I kept Roche up to date and I'd send them regular emails like a, you know, a clinical trial of N equals one. You were were doing your own clinical trial. You're like, here's the information. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So at the end of that year, so they just said I could have it for a year. And I thought, I won't think about what's happening after that. I'm just grateful I've got it now. And I kept advocating. And then then over that time, I've also done um, quite a few things for the Leukaemia Foundation. So I used to get asked to present at their conferences as a dietitian on nutrition for people with blood cancers and write articles for MPN News and that sort of thing. And... Uh, as part of that, I was asked if I could represent the Leukaemia Foundation at a rare cancers forum that was being run in Melbourne. And I went to that, and then as a result of that, they were having um, Rare Cancers Australia were ha- having a forum at Parliament House. So I was invited to that. And when I was at Parliament House, 
there was a, a presentation by Professor Andrew Wilson, who is was the, was the chair of the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee, the PBAC. Wow. And they decide what drugs are going to be allowed onto the PBS. So he spoke, and I remember his presentation was all about how we need more of the patient voice in the decision-making process. And traditionally, it's been the drug companies and clinicians and bureaucrats, but the patients have not been involved in this process. And they, the whole um, drug approval process was being reformulated to include the patient voice. Yes. Mm. And I thought, wow, I've got to get to speak to this man. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. at, at the end of the conference, at the end of the forum, um, and that day the health minister was there too and I got to have a chat to her and said, did you see my letter and sent through Josh Frydenberg and had a bit of a chat to her yeah. too. But anyhow, at the end of the day at Parliament House, um, um, there was a bus that took all the patients who'd been invited um, they were all people living with different sort of cancers who'd been invited as patient representatives of their particular cancer types. And we were being taken back to our hotel. And when I got into the bus, I noticed that there was only about half the bus full of people. And in the morning it had been full. And I thought, oh, we don't want to leave anybody behind. So I said to the bus driver, can you just wait? I want to see if there are some people who haven't made their way back down to the bus so we don't leave anyone behind. You're forever thinking about everyone else, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I go up the hill and I ask a few officials and that sort of thing. It turned out that all these other people had gone back earlier in the day in cabs because they were unwell or tired or it was a long day. So it was okay. There hadn't anyone been missed. So I saw all of the presenters, so all the big wigs who'd, who'd done their presentations standing, lining up there waiting for cabs. So I said to them, look, does anybody, is anyone staying at the, in Woden near whatever our hotel was? Because there's half a bus full of seats available if anybody wants a lift. And Professor Wilson came forward and said, oh, I'm in the next hotel. Can I, can I go on the bus? And I said, yes, of course. And I thought, oh, fantastic. So I got to sit on the bus beside him and I told him my story. And I asked him whether I could write to him directly about getting Pegasus on the PBS for MPN. And I explained that, look, it's not a large patient group. It's not going to cost the government a lot, but it is going to make a huge difference to people's lives if they can get this medication. And the old drug is just as effective, but it's much harder to tolerate. And he said, he yeah, said, yeah, you can write to me. Anyway, he got off the bus and he took my hand, hand wished, wished, wished me luck. luck. So, so, so I was so, so excited because I thought, wow, wow, I can actually, I can actually write, write directly, directly to, him. to him. Yes. So I got back to Melbourne and I wrote up a letter to him, but I wrote it from my personal point of view of my, my story and what had happened and how I felt on um, Rotheron and how hard it was being a mum, working and everything. But also I had about two pages of references and I included all the scientific data to, to show the evidence that it was helpful in delaying progression if started early. And I talked about how, you know, if people with MPN in Australia got access to this medication, 
not only would they be healthier and have a better quality quality of life, it could actually save the health system in the long run because if their disease didn't progress, they wouldn't need to go into hospital and have the cost of stem cell transplants that, you know, you know, 300,000 plus for an admission and the whole treatment and all of that burden on the healthcare system and they could continue to work and pay taxes and contribute to society as well. You you were so clever because you you put as you said you described you as a person and yes, you, yes. and he had seen you so he already had that connection but then you spoke to him I guess on his his level of how he receives and makes decisions and and um, things like that. So how clever yeah, for you yeah, to do you. that. <laughs> thank you. And I actually got three specialists in Melbourne to review my letter for me oh, yeah. wow. before I sent it. So I asked my haematologist at the time, another haematologist who I'd known because I'd been on a Leukaemia Foundation working group for MPN, and he was on that group. He's actually um, professor at, um, at St Vincent's now, the, the head of the department. He was lovely. And I've got a friend who's an infectious disease professor as well, and I asked her to also... Um, and also she helped me by getting data on how much it would, how much the government had already spent on treating um, hepatitis C yes. with Pegasus over the last 10 years and showing in comparison because we're a small patient group that it wasn't a big cost it was going to represent to allow this. We've already spent this amount. So that was another sort of... A, Wow. You covered all, all your bases. I covered all bases. <laughs> I did the best I could there. Yeah, ab- I, 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 yes, and as I said, I had two pages of references. So all the scientific stuff was referenced like yes, a scientific, scientific report. report. Wow. So anyway, uh, Professor Wilson received the letter and he wrote back to me and he said that they were going to table it, that they agreed. So the PBAC, um, him and his colleagues on the pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee agreed that there was a need for Pegasus, for pegylated interferon in the treatment of MPN. But the problem was that Roche had not applied for TGA, so Therapeutic Goods Administration, approval for Pegasus in MPN. And that's normally the first step that a drug company has to ask that government department for approval for for that disease before that they can apply, the drug company can apply to the PBAC to consider it on the mm. PBS. Right. So, it was quite, so he said to me, continue to advocate with Roche. And he said that he would also advocate to Roche, which is quite unusual because normally Absolutely. it's the drug companies go to the PBAC after they've got the Therapeutic Goods Administration approval They've got that approval. Then they say it's been approved by the TGA. Can this be put on the PBS? And it's it's um, not the other way the around. Process. Not the not the other way around. So it was tabled at three meetings, and also um, Richard Vines, who's the CEO of Rare Cancers Australia, who had invited me up to the conference in Canberra. I spoke with him and he was really helpful and he said to me, um, Who, who's your contact at Roche? And I told him and he said, oh, no, I, I know the, the CEO. I'll speak to him. So he went straight to the CEO of Roche and, and spoke about it. So over that next year. And were um, you still on treatment? Because you said they were only going to give you a year. So, so we, 
Yeah. Yes, cake. They kept extending it. So oh, at the end of wonderful. each year, they kept extending it. And then it got to about, I think, 2014 or 2015. And they said to me that I would just stay on it indefinitely under some sort of grandfather clause or something they called it. And um, anybody new who wanted to go on it, there was sort of a case-by-case -case basis type of thing. So I don't quite understand what happened, what was happening there, but they basically said to me I didn't ha need that annual renewal of that approval. It was sort of ongoing at that point. Right. Yes. 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 So anyhow, and all of that really made me even more determined to try to get this onto the PBS because I must admit I felt quite uncomfortable that I was getting it and I thought, what about everybody else? Because that my whole purpose was to try to get it on the PBS so it was available for everybody. Yeah. So when they gave it to me, it was like, well, this has made, made me even more determined because I was very grateful, but I also felt it, it, it's not quite fair. It should be available to everyone else who needs it as well. And how were your children and husband at this time? How was, how was life for them? Yes, look, um, life went on and we had all the usual things of, of, of um, school and school sports and all of the, the usual things, family holidays and everything. It's always a busy time in that time yeah. when your kids are growing up. Yeah. Um, and I guess because I was a lot better myself in my health, it was just sort of, oh, yeah, mum has, in, you know, has injections and has blood tests every now and again and, and that sort of thing. So it, I don't think it interfered with life too much. Yeah, and was it yeah. also looking, I mean, as a mother, and I'm a mother myself, mm -hmm. your children are such, they are they are such an encouragement to you because you want to be around. And would, would you look at them and go, for some some days, I'm, I don't know if you did, but go, oh, gosh, I just can't be right bothered making that phone call or doing that, you know, that advocacy letter, but going, then staring at them going, but I want to be here and I want many other parents or even, you know, people who don't have to be a parent, but to be here too. Was that a... Yes. Definitely, Kate. And that was something that was really strong in the beginning. I remember when I was first diagnosed and I hadn't even seen that first haematologist yet and I was so scared and I remember just being so scared that I wouldn't be around for my children to grow up. And I remember actually taking on more things at my children's school at the time because I wanted to be there for my kids. I remember being class rep for my son's class, which wow. meant extra work. But I did it so that he would know that oh, mum's the mum's the you know the you know how they get parents to be the coordinator of the other parents and things. And I took that on for him. Because I was thinking, I don't know how long I've got here. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to do as much as I can while I can. You want to, yeah, you wanted to be an active participant in his yes. life. Yes, yeah. exactly. exactly. Wow. wow. Yes, so anyway, the long and the short of it was over that year, that was 2018, uh, Pegasus was tabled at the PBAC meetings and then towards the end of the year no it was about the middle of the year it, it was approved and then it, it, it was announced in July that it that it was being added to the the PBS and, and I what was a called, feeling which was absolutely fantastic and I was invited to Peter McCallum to um the announcement so Greg Hunt the health minister went there and announced Pegasus and there were a couple of other 
blood cancer drugs and um, we the media were there and, and I went there and I and I asked um, my friend Ken Young to come along as well because he'd been, you know, he is such a great advocate for people with MPN as well. Yes. What did that feel like to finally hear that news? It was so exciting. It was just fantastic. I, it, it was just because I remember sometime over those seven or eight years thinking, I don't know if this is ever going to get anywhere. And I just felt like I was just knocking at a door and there was no answer for so long. Mm-hmm. And to finally actually achieve the result I'd been hoping, it was just fantastic. fantastic. It was very, very yeah. exciting. Yeah, yes. that's incredible. And I think to, to have that moment and to go, not only did it, this drug change my life, but then to go now, as you said, your whole goal and purpose was to have it be able to be accessed by the whole of Australia and you achieved yes. that like that's huge yes. that is that is huge it's no easy effort it, and how many years did you say you said seven plus eight yes yes because I started thinking about it in 2009 2009 to 2010 when I when I started treatment um was too early 2011 I came back from that Mayo Clinic conference and I decided I wanted to get onto the PBS, and it got onto the PBS on the first of August, twenty eighteen. Wow! Yeah, that's. And then what happens after that? I mean, because it would have consumed such a big part of your life. I envision. Yes. yes. And then, you know, and then it's like, oh, I've done it. I've achieved. What do you do? What happens? <laughs> that's right. Well. Um, I was asked to be. Oh, there was a group of hematologists around Australia who I knew saw a lot of MPM patients. And towards the last couple of years, I kept them in sort of a group email and told them what I was doing. Yeah. So that they, and they were lovely, sent back encouraging emails, which was really good. And when Pegasus was actually um, approved and on the PBS, PBS, they invited invited me to co-author with them on a a paper paper that was published in the... um, Internal Medicine Journal, which is the journal that all the specialists in Australia get on um, clinical guidelines for prescribing pegylated interferon for myeloproliferative neoplasm. Oh, so wow. What really an honour. It was an honour. It was. Yeah. It was. That was great. And I mean, friend, yeah. oh, no, I was going to say, well, you did something that not even haematologists could do. Not, you know, not to say that you were just a regular patient, but... You were a person that had this thrown upon you in your life without a choice and you were such an active participant in your own health but then also for so many other people and haematologists couldn't even do what you you did. (laughs) Well, it was interesting because along the way I had to actually self-learn how this whole PBAC, TGA, drug company thing works. And that was just through phone calls and contacting departments and speaking to people and trying to work out how the whole machinery worked. Yeah, you were curious. I was very curious. And I was lucky that I I have a science background. I majored in biochemistry in my undergrad degree. And I'm a bit of a geek and I love all that stuff anyway. Yes. So... Um, and I guess I was reading all the papers to try to reassure myself that everything was going to be okay, and hearing that there was interferon and a form of interferon that was easier to take that had that promise of maybe slowing progression, improving bone marrow status, and improving long-term outcome, Mm. it just made me think, great, 
people need to have this and get onto it early so that they can manage this disease. Yeah, exactly. And I think also what's incredible hearing your story is how the universe or, or whatever, sheer luck, how things you were just placed into, you went to Canberra and by mm-hmm. the chance of a children's auction at a school, then you, yes. the bus was half empty so you could have the person that you really needed to right then and there speak to open up the doors. and yeah, Exactly. Mm. That's right. There was a lot of serendipity along the way. But just, absolutely. It was amazing, really. Yeah. That's, yes, yes. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And so can I ask, how are you today? You, you know, you said- well, well, Kate, I'm actually very well and I'm very happy to say that I yes. um, had an appointment with my haematologist so, um, at Peter McCallum. Over the years, I changed again to another haematologist. Um, and she told me for the first time that I'm in complete haematological remission at the moment and I can stop pegasus now so i'm i stopped it as from last week and she said we'll do another blood test in four months and it's a bit of a trial to see how long i can be off it wow i've been on it all i've been on interferon all up both rofiron and pegasus for 14 years now so i'm having a break at the moment which is great wow and how like i as you say it's great but how did that make you feel how did you fantastic it It did that is so good i can just leave it in the fridge and forget about it for a while even though i was only on i've been on a very low dose for a long time i've only been on it monthly on a very low dose 45 micrograms which is incredibly low dose Mm -hmm. but it's just been maintaining my blood counts yeah in normal levels, which is fantastic. Yeah. So, did you ever feel like it was a burden? Did like, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this, but you know, like, did you ever feel like that? Not really. You just do what you got to do. I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everyone gets something, and being a health professional, I I see people all the time, and so many people have things, and you don't know by looking at people there's so many invisible diseases that people just live with and there's so many people with things so much worse than what I've got Mm. and I just feel really grateful that we live in a country where we have a government that has a pharmaceutical benefits scheme that we can advocate for Mm. our disease or, or for groups of patients with particular diseases and there is a system where you can get drugs, you know, no system's perfect, but when you look at around at other countries, we are so lucky in Australia, and I feel very grateful for that. Mm, and even all the experts that we have, like, you know, especially in the capital c- cities and here in Melbourne, we have so much blood cancer research happening, and actually in MPN, I've seen in the last 10 years or so, there was nothing happening in Australia when I was first diagnosed, and now... There's so much happening, even in the MPN field, which is so fantastic. Yeah, wow. It is, it is. And I think that it's that hope again is that things can change and that, as you said, what you've been able to see go across in in 10 years from nothing to now having people's eyes and ears open to the word Mm. MPN before a lot of people didn't even know it existed or what it exactly, was. Exactly. And um, to see the improvements and for it to come leaps and bounds is incredible. Yes, it is. And uh, I think the other thing I think that we have to remember is that um, no matter how bad things can seem, 
when you're first diagnosed because when you're diagnosed with the, with the disease, it's a big shock. Your whole self-image has to sort of change. You think you're this person with this sort of health status and suddenly you're told you've got something and you need to have tests and you need to go to appointments. And it's very, you know, it's inconvenient at any time, but especially in a busy life, it's really inconvenient. Yes, absolutely. You had other plans. Exactly. And all of a sudden I had to make time to do these things. It was important to do that for my health. And probably before I was diagnosed, I don't think I would have thought I had the time to go to doctor's appointments. Mm -hmm. But you have to make it, don't you? You do. Yes. 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 And what's what's happened for you recently? I know that um, you've had some incredible acknowledgement for your work and advocacy that you um, have done. Yes. Well, Kate, amazingly enough, um, I was awarded with, an OAM on Australia Day. That's incredible. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And there's a bit of a funny story on that too because about October last year, yeah. I got an email and it said it was from the Governor-General and I just looked at it and thought, oh, there's some spam here. I almost deleted it. <laughs> and my husband said, what, the Governor-General? Have a look at it. So I had a look and I saw that it, it just told me that I'd been nominated and that I couldn't say anything to anybody and I would hear later in the year and I had to accept, I basically had to let them know whether I accepted the nomination but I had to go through the process with the committee that who would decide whether or not it was going to be awarded. So did so, you know who nominated you? Would they tell no, you? No, I still don't know. Wow. But, you know, the other thing I was going to say is the day that Pegasus got onto the PBS, um, there was an article in the, in the um, I, think it was, I think it was the Murdoch papers, so, you know, the, the Herald Sun and the Sydney Morning Herald, etc. Um, I, I was interviewed by Annika Smethurst, who's a political journalist in Canberra, and she wrote an article about my journey and Pegasus getting onto the PBS. And that coincided with the day that the announcement happened at Pete McCallum. And that day um, we were able to announce it on the MPN Facebook pages in Australia. And I had literally hundreds of patients thanking me. me. And even since I've had lots of people contact me and say, thank you, I can get this drug that I need, which is so lovely. How beautiful. And so I I don't know who nominated me. Um, I do know that my my CEO at work and the general manager were asked to be... um, referees so they asked four people to, to write references for you but I, I'll probably never know who, who nominated me yeah yeah so yeah, quite amazing so I went to government house and we and and I had the investiture last week wow so and what that was, was that amazing. like and what that was, was that fantastic like? it was such a happy day um I went there with my family and my my lovely aunt who I'm very close to and lives nearby us, came along too. And it was a beautiful day. It was a sunny day and it was oh, a very man. happy very occasion. occasion and, and, 
they had a champagne afternoon tea on the lawn overlooking the city and the beautiful gardens there and it was it was amazing. amazing. What a big week it's been for you. You got told that, that you, you got your Order of uh, Medal of Australia and then you got, also got told that you no longer have to be on the drug that you advocated so hard for for everybody yeah, yeah. else. Yes, it's been amazing. So it'll be interesting to see how long I can have this holiday off Pegasus. Because, yeah. Um, oh, and the other thing I'm going to have in four months is another um, allele burden test to look at how much of the Jaxi mutation I've got because hopefully over time the Pegasus suppresses that mutation and we'll see how much. So I had that first tested five years ago because it's only a fairly new test wasn't available um, when I was originally diagnosed. So, and, and at that stage, the the JAK2 mutational burden was quite high. It was about 95%. So it'll be interesting to see what it is now. Yeah, wow. Yes, because that's an indication of, of the success of the drug and, and how it's suppressing the disease activity. We'll have to do a part two of this interview. <laughs> and what do you have your eyes on next? What are you advocating for next? Are you advocating for anything next? No, I'm not really. No, I'm not advocating for anything. But I continue to work with the um, my MPN friends with um, MPN Alliance Australia. So that was a group of us who set up um, an MPN advocacy group I guess you'd call it under as volunteers under the Leukemia Foundation so we're all volunteers and we're all people with MPN around Australia so there's five of us and we've done fundraising and um, I'm also a consumer representative with Walter and Liza Hall which is a research facility in Melbourne sort of connected or behind Royal Melbourne Hospital and I'm, I'm a consumer representative with MPN Research there. And they're doing some amazing research there. They're, they're publishing at the moment some amazing, amazing wow. um, data on their research. And um, also I'm a consumer representative with research at the University of Western Australia. You are a busy so, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Your time is full. Yes, and I've also done some things for um, Professor Kate Burberry, who's my haematologist at Peter McCallum. And during COVID, we did some interviews and some recordings for the, the VCCC, which is the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre, on telehealth. So I was the telehealth patient oh, and she was the clinician. Yeah. And then they, I did a film for them that was um, done at Peter McCallum and I was acting as an MPM patient or just as a patient, a, a Peter McCallum patient, and they recorded me with, there was a student, um, a new graduate nurse who played my daughter and I was like a person at home setting up for telehealth and I was talking through all the things that you need to do for, for telehealth and that's uh, that's going to be used in in hospitals and that sort of thing to help people use telehealth so I just sort of do bits and pieces like that and then Kate Burberry and I did an interview on AM with um oh I can't remember her name in the morning ABC radio about telehealth and that was funny because one day at work my my CEO 
I saw him on the way into work and he said to me, I heard you on the radio this morning. <laughs> he heard the interview. Oh, <laughs> incredible. And then you give your time so graciously like this and we can't um, we can't thank you enough at the Leukemia Foundation and also on the behalf of the community that you've how you've changed the way that people are treated and the quality of life for so many um, around the country. So we can't thank you enough. Thank you, Kate. Is, is there any, um, as we always do, we always like to, you've, you've sown some beautiful pearls of wisdom throughout the episode, but is there anything that you would like to give someone advice who's newly diagnosed or, or in a position where they're halfway through and potentially losing a bit of hope? Is, mm-hmm. there any, is there any words of wisdom that you could offer? Yes, Kate. So what I was thinking, um, just reflecting back to how I felt early in this in my diagnosis and the uncertainty and the the sort of the vague um prognosis i got then what i'd say to people is no matter how bad things look it can always get better so everybody in our lives we all have ups and downs and when we're at a down we think it's going to be like that all the time but have hope it will come up again and, and often the way we think things are aren't always reality. It's our, our mind can sort of race away on us and make things look blacker than they actually are. So have hope. That's one. Um, also, don't necessarily believe a prognosis. We can, it's only a guide and it's the best guide that, that the clinician can give with the information available. But it's not a certainty and there are new treatments. People's bodies have a great capacity to heal and things can work out differently for some people. Mm. And we can always get second opinions as well. Mm. So that, that's something. Um, and I'd also say to people, try to get the best treatment and diagnosis for you, even if it means having second or third opinions, and that's okay. And that's, you know... Doctors and other health professionals, I know myself as an allied health professional, as a dietitian, we welcome that because each person has to get what's right for them and, and that um, the, the patient-clinician dynamic is a really important part of their treatment and if it means they go to someone else and they're better for it, that's great. Um, and also, obviously, I have to say this, as a dietitian, I say to people, there is a lot we can do to stay well. We can eat well. We can, you know, focus on the five food group foods, you know, the fruits, the veggies, the grain foods, the protein foods and dairy foods as most of what we eat in our meals and snacks and keep all the extra foods as sometimes foods. Yes. Um, and also moving every day. So physical activity is really important for physical health and mental health. And there have been studies done in physical activity and yoga with MPN, which has shown improvement in symptoms. Like fatigue is a big problem in MPN. Yes, it is. And because the body is making these cytokines, these inflammatory mediators that cause fatigue. And some of the treatments like interferon increases cytokines too. So physical activity helps people actually feel better. So, you know, people might think, oh, if I rest, I'll feel better. But we've got to balance being strong and being active, which actually gives us more energy. So resting too much can, can you know, rest is necessary, but it's a balance. Too much rest and we get weak. So moving each day. 
and just enjoying the now. Like we all, our minds think about the future, and especially people. And I know I'm like that because I like to plan and be organized. And sometimes I could be jumping ahead and wanting to have everything sort of set up and in my control. And sometimes you've just got to enjoy the moment and just enjoy the now. Yeah. And um, oh, that's so powerful. Smell the roses. <laughs> oh, so powerful and um, so very, very true. And hard to take on, advice that is hard to take on, but I think it's really important, important, valuable advice. You know, it's, um, yeah, something that we can all do and all control. So, Thank you. Yeah. And enjoy the company of others. And, so true. And that is such an important thing in life. And that's why I think I love community health because it's all about people. And Absolutely. Yes. And I think COVID too has really, for many people who thought they're a bit of a hermit, um, mm-hmm. has really shown the importance of connection and, yes, right, right, right. yeah, the, the importance of community and being surrounded by, the, by your tribe or people you love or, or people that um, you just need to help add on to your support team. So it's Exactly. Mm. And it's in giving and doing things for others that we find happiness too. Absolutely. Oh, I'm such a believer mm. in that. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for your time and sharing your such your unique story and um, how you changed uh, the way for MPN in Australia and for many other people around Australia. We, as I said before, we thank you and I thank you for your time and having this conversation with me today. Thank you, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope that you found it helpful in some way. If you would like more information on today's show or our services, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Also, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe, share or even give us a rating on your podcast app. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.